Hey, everybody. Welcome to Trashy Divorces. My name is Stacy. Hey, everybody. I'm Alicia. Thanks for joining us today for, whoa, <laughs> I've never heard a story like it. Stacy, you are bringing us a, not a Hall of Famer, but an all-star many, many times over. Certainly an all-star. This is inventor and I guess industrialist Isaac Merritt Singer. Yes, this is one of our historical ones. It all happened in the 19th century, but it will blow your mind because- I promise that is true. This guy is a trash bag. Before we get started on our episode with all of the Marys and Marias Mm. in our Maria number five episode this week, I got a big magic mirror here to give some thanks (laughs) and praise and shout outs to our newest supporters on Patreon. And our first one is, ironically, Maria. (laughs) Thank you, Maria. Thank you, Carrie M., Shauna M., Sarah Alice, Alice Claire, Allison M., Darlene L., Chelsea B., and Rihanna J. Big thanks to our new super supporters this week, Carrie A., Allison N., and Jeanette C. Holy cats, y'all are amazing. Thanks for joining us at our little trash candy community over on Patreon. Got a few more shout outs. In our magic mirror this week, I see Nancy's name. Mm -hmm. We are sending Nancy big love from TDHQ2. I see one more name, and that's the Breakup Breakdown podcast in our friend Abby. Yep. We were on to talk through a genuinely trashy divorce. (laughs) Yeah. Abby was sweet enough to have us on Mm -hmm. to make commentary on a terrible trashy divorces. Check that out if you'd like a little bit of... Us breaking it down. Yeah, a little breakup breakdown. That was fun. Super fun. Thanks again, Abby. Thanks again, new Patreon folks. Big love to y'all for coming back to listen this week. Stacy, so many Marias. We should probably go, go, go back to the 19th century. This guy has been on the list for so long, Stacy. I need to know all the trashy details of Isaac Singer. Sure. Uh, Alicia, I have a story today that is so out there, so unlike anything that we have ever talked about on this show before that I'm worried it's going to blow your mind. I hope you're sitting down because today we're going to talk about a not especially upright kind of ultra rich guy who had a bunch of wives and mistresses and attempted to, perhaps not with any particular intent, forestall population collapse through the spread of his own seed far and wide, wide and far. And we're not talking about Elon Musk. No. <laughs> A forerunner, perhaps. Um, so Jaja Gabor, she had nine. Tommy Manville, who we talked about the other week, had 13. But our subject this week distinguished himself by having multiple simultaneous secret families. And while technically... Isaac Merritt Singer only had 2.5 wives, uh-huh. depending on how you count. It is his 24 acknowledged children that clear the way for us to install Mr. Singer, inventor and pioneering marketer, into the trashy pantheon where our Hall of Fame lives and where the cats have generously sculpted wax figurines of our all-stars. Wow. 24. 24. Though the entirety of his life played out in the 19th century, as you can see... Everything old is new again. Isaac Singer did not hawk luxury cars or build phallic rockets. Rather than make toys for his fellow ultra-rich friends, Isaac Singer instead developed what amounts to the first home appliance. 
and with his business partners, eventually came up with the pay and installments method of making it available, even to households of fairly modest means. When the first Singer sewing machines began to be produced in the mid-1850s, comparable sewing machines, he made a better one, basically. Uh, on the market at the time, they were quite expensive. It was roughly like a $3,000 expense in today's money. Wow. Yeah, the average wage at the time was like, annual salary was like $500. So Yeah, you yeah. weren't able to afford a sewing. That, that's luxury. Right. So Singer came up with, you know, we're going to do mass production. We're going to use interchangeable parts. And so the consumer price fell to like half and then eventually by about 90% uh, and his profit margins went through the roof. I mean, oh, this I guy was very reminiscent of sort of the personal computer arc. VCR, right? Oh, was, we got Beta. We got yep. Wonder Max, whatever yep. the hell it was v called. VHS. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is this is a an arc in a product that we're all familiar with. In a contemporary way, that's how it played out in the 1850s and 60s. Fascinating. So, to the best of my ability, I would like to weave the tale of Isaac Singer, his 2.5, depending on how you count wives, his 24 children, his several other hidden families, and how sometimes, at least in the 19th century, rich guys behaving badly did experience consequences. Let's get into it. Isaac Merritt Singer was the youngest of eight children of Adam Singer, a German-Jewish immigrant, and Ruth Singer, who was born in Pittstown, New York, on October 26th or October 27th, 1811. I've seen both dates. Sometime late October. His parents split when he was 10, and his mother abandoned the family, so that's not great. His dad was apparently pretty violent, um, and with the kids, too. Oh, no. His father, who was 68 at the time that his wife left him, he was pretty violent in the home. He did remarry, and in spite of all of these shortcomings of his father, somehow bringing in a stepmother just made things even worse for Isaac. So, when a traveling stage act from Rochester passed through Oswego, no. where the family was living when he was 12 years old, he basically ran away with the circus. Hitched a ride. Uh-huh. Yeah. Just rode along on the way back to Rochester, which at the time was a boomtown fueled by the nearly completed Erie Canal. So this became his home for the next several years. It's thought maybe he lived with an older brother who had gone there to work on the canal. Isaac talked himself into a job as a machinist's assistant in his teen years, but he left this job after just four months, claiming to have learned all there was to know on the subject. Oh, I'm an expert now. A master of machinery. Wow. Whatever. But there was probably a better explanation for his sudden shift of focus. Another group of traveling performers showed up in Rochester in 1830, and a barely literate Isaac showed up with some snippets of Shakespeare memorized and was hired on the spot. He was a handsome 19-year-old and already quite charismatic, but he was also quite hot-tempered. He was unfocused. He liked to create arguments with people. This was a lifelong... This is Isaac. <laughs> you don't do that on the Shakespeare wagon. Oh, he did not last long with oh. the troupe, but it sparked this lifelong quixotic dream to become a respected Shakespearean actor. Of course it does. Uh, in spite of apparently not being exceptionally talented as an actor. Uh, one paper at the time said he had like a brutish charisma or something. Like he couldn't really nail the emotional parts, let's say. Wow. In December of 1830, by then having found gainful employment in carpentry in tiny Palmyra, New York, he married Catherine Maria Haley. 
He went by Maria. He was 19. She was 15. And things were so tight oh, for I... them. Well, yeah, 1830. I know. I know. Mm-hmm. Just, ugh. Things were so tight for them that they lived with her parents for a while. They would remain married in the most perfunctory of ways for the next 30 years. In the meantime, Maria's young man was seemingly trying to find his feet. The carpentry job left him wanting, so they moved a few miles up the canal to Port Gibson, where he worked in a shop. But he was destined for more. He knew it. So on to the next thing, just flitting about. Many women in the era dealt with unreliable drunkard husbands, but Maria's young man had a much worse addiction. Oh, no. Any time a theater company rolled through town, <laughs> Isaac Singer made a beeline and he would disappear until the troupe had had enough of him. And then he would show up back at home. Just constantly. Where's Isaac? Mm-hmm. Well. <laughs> a newspaper at some point in Singer's life wrote, quote, his intimacy with the female part of the population was severely commented upon and much sympathy expressed for his wife. Somewhere Maria's brother was quoted as saying, most of his time was spent giving performances. Oh, I bet. Mm. Auspicious, auspicious start to this marriage. I don't know if you have a song picked out for this one yet, but right now in my head, I'm hearing Jim Croce's Working at the car wash, please. Oh, hey, that's good. Very put upon. I should be mm. running this joint now. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. In a big office with all the ladies in the skirts. And here I am stuck in a life that is unfulfilled. Oh, yes. Why doesn't anyone understand me? So he and Maria would go on to have two children together. Okay. Uh, which actually just makes the next part of the story quite a lot worse. Oh, no. In year four of the marriage, 1835... Isaac and Maria moved to the big city, and he quickly found work at a factory. Uh, You know, but it's New York City, and he is the ultimate and endless theater kid. This is going to go terribly. (laughs) The following year, without telling Maria, he hit the road with a touring company in kind of a jack-of-all-trades role. He He was their agent. He was the manager. He was the personal assistant to the actors. He was a fill-in actor when there was a need. He also dropped Singer as a last name, and thus was born Isaac Merritt, Shakespearean actor. Oh, no. I don't know what production they were putting on, but they had an extended engagement in Baltimore, Maryland. Okay. Where Isaac Merritt, actor met the next of several victims in this story. Oh, no. A young woman named Marianne Sponsler. Oh, Marianne, yeah, run. She may have been born in 1817, so she would have been maybe 19 when they met. Oh. Anyway, one great advantage to being Isaac Merritt instead of Isaac Singer was that Isaac Singer was married, while in his own mind, Isaac Merritt was, he was held down by nothing. He's a free man. no one. Yeah, single guy. He's a man of the stage. Oh, Lord. He moved into the Sponsler home for a few weeks. Oh, no. I think they were fairly prosperous. Her father owned a saloon and was also an oyster monger, which, <laughs> as careers go. And by the time the troop left Baltimore to return to New York, he and Marianne were engaged. Sure they were, because Isaac Merritt can get engaged. He's a single guy. Obviously, this was going to cause some complications for his marriage to Maria, who at the time was pregnant with their second child. 
And so when he returned, he apparently demanded that she move out of their home. His wife did? Yeah, and I'm sure they were living in very humble... I mean, it's not like this guy's making a ton of money. And where is she going to go pregnant? She stayed in the city until the baby was born and then moved back to Palmyra to live with her parents. Um, Maria, smart. I mean... Yeah. Probably in a pretty dark mood on the topic of that layabout Isaac Singer... They did not, however, as noted, divorce, at least not then. When Marianne got to town in September of 1936, Isaac was stuck having to explain that he couldn't actually marry her because he was already married. Oops. So her options were to go home to Baltimore or live with him as his wife without actually being his wife. And she must have been in love because she stayed he waits until she's made the journey mm-hmm. in 18, what the hell ever. 36, yeah. Yeah. From Baltimore to New York City, which I can't imagine is an easy journey. Carriages. Train, perhaps. Coming on the wedding wagon, only to realize when you get there, the pregnant wife has already been moved out and we can't get married anyway. And she still says yes. Hmm. Oh, Marianne. <laughs> the question then is, oh. was it love? For Isaac. Well, he and Marianne did pop out a baby the next year, at which point he announced that he was again setting out for the road to find stardom and nail down his particular spot in the history books as an actor. Isaac Merritt must rise again. Marianne took the baby and headed back to Baltimore. Oh, God. Telling her parents that her no good layabout husband, Mr. Merritt, had abandoned her. Isaac headed for the Midwest, perhaps thinking that it would be in America's second city, Chicago, where he could claw his way into the hearts of playgoers, critics, and fellow thespians. Well, and all the single ladies, too, apparently. (laughs) Instead, he drifted through the region, laboring for small wages and ending up working on the Illinois-Michigan Canal, like with a shovel in his hands. This was decidedly not the dream. But it inspired something for him anyway. He dreamed up and patented what was apparently a fairly innovative and kind of ready-to-go rock drill that could be used in canal work. And his employers bought the rights to it for a massive sum of $2,000, oh, wow. which is like fifty grand in today's money. So Isaac's taking a year off. <laughs> is he ever? Hot damn! Isaac, then 28, must have thought. He headed to Baltimore to retrieve his abandoned would-be wife. And as Mr. and Mrs. I.M. Singer, though, again, they never married, they traveled to Chicago to let Isaac Merritt finally, finally make it big as the leader of the Merritt Players. Oh, no. (sighs) Alas, it was not to be. And the couple and their tiny troupe, including Marianne's brother, spent the next half decade wandering the Midwest in a wagon, putting on plays for tiny towns Long past the time that the patent money had run out. He and Marianne had three more kids during this wandering in the wilderness period. Writer Paul C. Wilson, chronicling Singer and his compatriots in the sewing machine revolution, found the 1843 recollections of a man named Tuttle, whose hotel housed the Merritt Players for a time in this period. Tuttle says, I kept a hotel in the town of Pequa, Ohio. Singer, calling himself Merritt, and his wife and two children came to my hotel and remained nearly a week, giving recitations, mostly from Shakespeare's plays, they giving their entertainments in the ballroom of the hotel. 
I remember my wife gave up our family room to the distinguished elocutionist and his family while they remained. My recollection of Singer is that at that time he was very poor in pocket, shabby in person, and disposed to be rough and unkind in his manner. Mrs. Singer was quite the opposite, refined, amiable, and courteous. The children, a boy and a girl, were bright, well-mannered children. They all left my hotel in a common two-horse wagon, and their whole baggage would not have brought ten dollars. I gave him three dollars to pay his way to the next town. <laughs> wow. Ah, uh, the hotel Isn't was that like, incredible. Please, please leave. go. Please leave. See ya. Can we have our robes back? <laughs> Thanks. In 1844, with his resources fully exhausted, the Merritt players called it quits in the town of Fredericksburg, Ohio, population 300. It did have a sawmill, though, and Isaac had the requisite skills to be hired to cut out wooden type for use on printing presses. Once again, he was doing work that he believed was far, far beneath him. So again, he built a machine that would cut out wooden type for him. This guy is exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> Again, not a new machine. Like a, a rock drill is not exactly... He would take existing things and make them better. He he wasn't really coming up with... Anything new. Right. He just wanted to work less hard. Yes. So what's around that I can capitalize on to, in fact, work less hard? Yes. Unfortunately, Fredericksburg was not a place where he could make a lucrative deal to sell his new machine. It also seems like his bosses hated him and perhaps fired him. So the Singer family, such as they were, wandered over to Pittsburgh to try to find financial support there. He did initially, but then managed to piss everyone off and burn all of his bridges, and so Pittsburgh was out. By 1849, he had secured the patent for his machine, but still found no buyers. He, Marianne, and their six children returned to New York City to get to work on building a commercial prototype that he could sell. But, and I, I, I wish I was making this up. The machinery company that leased him some space in which to work exploded in 1850, killing 63 people and destroying oh my God, this his is terrible. prototype. <sighs> yes, uh, industrial accidents in the era were horrific. This seems a good place to pause because... Oh, on the edge of disaster? Yikes. series of, some might say, unfortunate events are about to bring us to the invention of the Singer sewing machine. See you on the flip. Hi, everybody. I'm Katie Segal. And I'm Kurt Sutter. And welcome to our new podcast called Pi, People, Influences, and Experiences. Yes, it's sort of the uh, get to know you at a deeper level, the who, what, when, where, and why you are rather than what it is you do. Absolutely. We're not going to talk too much about what people do. We just want to know about their families, where they come from, you know, what shapes their parenting if they have kids, what shapes their marriages if they're married. We just want to be really nosy. We want to get in there. A deep dive into nature and nurture. And we started it because there are a lot of people that we don't know that we are curious about. Right. And I have no friends, so for me, it's, you know... Try like, to get them out of the house. Listen to it on whatever you listen to. <laughs> Podcasts on yeah, podcast your, 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 your podcasting apparatus. Watch it on the YouTube. He's aging himself. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call. 
talk to one of them. They stay anonymous. I can't hang up. That's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh. Somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today. Beautiful Anonymous. All right, Stacy, we're back with the rest of the story, and I'm not going to kid you. I am not a fan of Isaac. <laughs> well, I mean, as we know, no one is an island, and Isaac, of course, constantly needed financial support to get his tomfoolery in the world. So he met a bookseller named George Zeber, who would become his business partner for several years until he cheated Zeber out of his share. Oh, God. Um, Zeber recalled Isaac's circumstances in New York circa 1850, as written in the Paul Wilson book. Zeber said, Singer at that time was wretchedly poor, out at the elbows, without money or credit, with a large family to support. He lived in two small rooms on the second floor of a house in Third Avenue, and his children ran about the streets in patched garments. I was an occasional visitor at Singer's humble home, where dinner and supper were taken together upon stewed meat and potatoes. Forks with two prongs were then used, and we helped ourselves with pewter spoons from one common dish in the center of the pinewood table. Not doing great. Just not a successful guy, but now he's got eight children by two different mothers. Wow. Okay. In pursuit of a new prototype and a place to display it, Isaac and his bookseller backer headed up to Boston. And the space that they rented was in a building where there was a tailor on the top floor, and the tailor was working with this current sewing machine technology, which was unreliable and super expensive and just constantly breaking down. Okay, okay. Story's coming together. Yeah, so through some serendipity, Isaac eventually agreed to take a look at these, you know, flawed, malfunctioning sewing machines. I'm a machines. mechanical genius. I, I'd four months, man. I learned it all. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, his woodcutting machine was, you know, in a window where people could see it, but it was not exactly drawing crowds. Uh, the world was about to switch over to uh, cast iron typeset for printing machines. So this machine wouldn't have, yeah, wouldn't have been helpful anyway. So yeah, the, the thing was expensive to manufacture. And even if he were making sales, margins would be very low. But to be clear, he was not making sales. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> but sewing machines... The important work on them had already been done by others and were, in fact, patented. Isaac could take this existing thing and make it better and maybe, just maybe, finally find his pathway to fame and fortune. So he reconfigured the pre-existing designs. And to his credit, he seemed to have a fairly intuitive sense of what we would call, like, user experience or, you know, like... How he, it should work. Yeah, he. it's not that he was without genius. It's just overshadowed by so much else about the man. <laughs> so, you know, as this work is ongoing, he's alternately angering the various machinists who were making parts for his sewing machine prototype. Perfect. Or performing snippets of Shakespeare for them. And <laughs> go either way. Could go, you just never know. You just never know. On August 12th, 1851, Isaac Singer was awarded U.S. Patent 8294 for the new sewing machine to be manufactured and sold by I.M. Singer & Co. Isaac's sewing machine was the first targeted to the household market rather than to like commercial fabric production houses. And in ways big and small, good and bad, it really did change the world. And it changed Isaac's circumstances, but it did not change his disposition. 
He fairly immediately set out to cheat his business partners out of their shares, something he succeeded in doing. Like he would take a machine to a commercial clothing manufacturer, demonstrate it, and take, you know, the order for however many they wanted to buy it. Absolutely. $100 per, and the customer would obviously write a check for a down payment on the order. Isaac would come back to his partners with, again, this check, which was supposed to be divided into thirds. There were the the guy that owned the building in uh, Boston was also a partner in the company. Okay. So he'd, you know, he'd come back <laughs> with this check, which should be, it was everyone's profit and would be like, I have an investor in New York who wants to buy your share and here's a check for it. <gasps> no. Yeah. And he, he, he did chase one of them away with that tactic. It was not good. On his abusive posture toward his business partners, writer Peter Lyon wrote in 1958, In short, he behaved like a ruthless man of business, whilst his partners behaved like gentle chuckleheads. Gentle chuckleheads. There were also patent disputes between Isaac, who, after all, had based his patent on improvements to the earlier machine designs patented by other people. And, uh, you know, so the patent holders for the earlier machines were quite interested in Mr. Singer's new contraption. Oh, I bet. Sewer's gonna sew. This necessitated the bringing in of a lawyer as a business partner. And since the newly established company did not yet have any money, attorney Edward Clark was given the one-third share that this guy Phelps, who owned the building in Boston, had had. Anyway, this is a move that would pay dividends for the company down the road, even if Isaac and Edward would go to their graves with a deep and seething loathing for each other. As to be fair, most people did when it came to Isaac Singer. I'm getting that. It seems like the first few years of I Am Singer and Co. was a pretty seat-of-the-pants operation, which I guess is cool, since if you tear the seat of your pants, you now have a machine to sew it back together. But market conditions did improve. Isaac's Wikipedia page says that in 1856, the company manufactured, like, 2,500 sewing machines. Four years later, in 1860, they made 13,000. Holy cats. I assume that the sewing machine industry in general was probably helped by the Civil War shortages of stuff plus uh, government contracts to make uniforms, all of that stuff. So by 1870, Singer & Co. had surpassed all of its sewing machine rivals, and it sold 127,833 sewing machines that year. Good lord. Yeah, his machine was genuinely better than everything else on the market. Well, that's fantastic, but those are that's astronomical. Yeah, we are getting ahead of ourselves. Though the Singer machine was developed in Boston, the man himself had reasons to get back to the big city of New York. Oh, yeah? Borrowing from the Peter Lyons piece again. Somewhere in New York was his wife, whom <laughs> he had long since deserted. Oh, God, Maria! What happened to Maria? He called her Maria. There, too, was his consort, Marianne Sponsler. Oh, God. He called her Mary. And under two different roofs, there were his children, who now numbered nine. But he had an imperative motive for settling once again in New York. The fact was, love had come again to Singer in the shape of Mary Eastwood Walters. (laughs) Her name is not Mary. He called her Mary. Oh, God. 28 years old and presently the mother of his 10th child. He had not been in New York very long before love came to him again, for he was nothing if not receptive to the little naked god in the shape of Mary McGonagall. No! How how convenient he could call her Mary, too, 22 years old, and presently the mother of his 11th child. This was early 1850s. Then Lyons takes us to 1859. 
Together with his principal consort, Marianne Sponsler, he moved to a fashionable address, 14 Fifth Avenue. Oh, wow, that is fashionable. The count of his progeny was now 18, two by his wife Maria, 10 by Marianne Sponsler. Oh, my God. But of these two had died. One by Mary Eastwood Walters Merritt, and five by Mary McGonagall Matthews. I'm not sure why Matthews. His confidence, always high, had waxed to the point where he could recognize love even when it came to him under some name other than Mary. He engaged to accept the devotion of a pair of Ellens, Ellen Brazy and Ellen Livingston, young ladies whose unions with Singer were, however, never blessed. Heretofore he had been content to wait for love to come to him, but now he grew apprehensive. He seemed to dread that perhaps love was not aware of his change of address. In any event, according to the subsequent testimony of his coachman, he took to waiting for romance to find him on street corners. Singer kept his coachman busy. He had ten horses, which had cost him $10,000. He maintained three carriages at a cost of another $3,000. But all this was not enough. He conceived a jumbo equipage on which he actually took out a patent, number 25,920. It was, said the New York Herald, a regular steamboat on wheels, a monster, having all the conveniences of a modern brownstone front with the exception of a cooking department. This mammoth, weighing nearly two tons and painted, lest anyone fail to notice it, a vivid canary yellow, no. could, could seat 31 passengers inside and out. It was outfitted with a nursery at the back end with beds to put the dear ones to sleep. A small orchestra could be accommodated in seats on the of outside. Of course it could. With guards enough to keep off all outside barbarians. It was drawn by nine horses, three cream-colored ones in front, then a light-colored cream between two sorrels, and finally a bay between two large gray wheel horses. Whether, the Herald's reporter commented with pardonable asperity, this eccentric turnout is intended for speed, comfort, or advertisement, the reader must judge. In 1860... Potentially concerned that Maria, to whom he is still married, the only person he has married so far. Now, the new song that's playing in my head is Mambo Number no. 5, but it's all just about Maria. <laughs> a little bit of Mary in my life, a little bit of Maria by my side. It's just all derivatives, but maybe with an Ellen thrown sure, in. Sure. I'm caught up. Don't forget the Ellens. No, I mean, Ellens are wonderful, but no competition against the five Marys you got going. <laughs> Isaac. Isaac. So 1860, Isaac is running this very successful company and perhaps became concerned that his lawful wife might like a cut. Wouldn't you think 30 years later? So he divorced her and get this on the grounds of adultery. Nah. Because it turns out that Maria had moved on with her life. Having well, like you would. Been chased out by scumbag Isaac. This was all too much for their son, who by then was in his 20s. He angrily defended his mother in court. And as a result, young William would receive just $500 of his father's 13 million-ish dollar estate upon, the will. upon his death a decade and a half later. What a jerk. But the court granted the divorce early in 1860, which must have been a great day for Mary Ann, his long-suffering pseudo-wife. Mother to eight of his children. they've been married, like, they've been... Together for 25 together. years Yeah, now, so yeah. they're going to get married now, right? <laughs> In theory, the two could finally formalize yeah. things and perhaps erase any stain on Marianne's reputation and social standing Or the, the ten process. kids she has. Oh, God, what happens? Isaac stubbornly refused to consider any change of state for them. 
And then, in August of 1860, no. Marianne was being driven in a carriage one afternoon when it pulled up alongside Isaac's carriage, and Isaac was not alone inside of his carriage. What's her name? That day he was accompanied by Mary McGonagall. <laughs> no! A singer employee and mother of seven of Isaac's children. God. A classic car chase ensued, this is true. <laughs> Isaac basically told the coachman to floor it while Mary Ann's oh carriage oh followed in hot pursuit no. with her screaming at her would-be husband until Isaac's carriage managed to get away in traffic. By the time she got home, he was already there and he was mad. Uh, oh, oh, he yeah. was mad oh, that yeah. you caught me with my other common-law wife oh, that yeah. she didn't know about that Mary and the seven kids? Shouting escalated oh, no. to hitting. No. Police were summoned and it, this turned into a big scandal i mean obviously this guy is a flamboyant figure in new york at this point he's a flamboyant adulterer yeah the subsequent scandal was enough to send isaac to europe but not alone he oh, was no. accompanied by kate mcgonagall mary mcgonagall's sister what yep younger sister little bit of katie on the boat mm -hmm. good lord okay all of this was absolutely terrible for singer and co which was then attempting to market its sewing machines by giving them to churches at huge discounts. The <laughs> ostentatiousness with which Isaac conducted his day-to-day -day affairs was also something of a black eye, and his lawyer business partner was constantly at pains to seem just like a stand-up, normal business guy running a reliable, trustworthy company. Isaac was no help. Isaac did come back the following year, in 1861, and Marianne, again, never married to him, promptly served him with divorce papers. Good for you, Marianne. So she claimed that since they had lived together for like seven months after his divorce from Maria, that- Marvin Mitchelson, where was, are you? Yeah, that they were common-law spouses. It was probably a pretty thin argument, but the judge in the case looked at the totality of circumstances- and promptly awarded her $8,000 a year in temporary alimony. Fantastic. And allowed the divorce case to proceed. Isaac was a dog, but he was no dummy. And so he quickly settled out of court with her. Uh, she got a furnished house in Manhattan. All of her legal fees paid. A $500 lump sum and $50 a week for life or until she remarried. And with that, he bounced to Europe again. This time taking a young French mistress, the married 19-year-old no. Isabella Boyer. Jesus Christ. Who became Isaac's second wife on a trip back to America <sighs> in 1863. So he will get married after... Uh, she, she divorced her French wow. husband. And, mm -hmm. Ooh la la. They would have six children together. Oh my God. And Isaac would spend his twilight years building a palatial 115-room mansion on the English coast in the Devon seaside town of Torquay, which I think is... Uh, Agatha Christie's hometown, too? It's quite lovely. I think I watched an escape to the country. Perfect. From Devonshire he, not quite long ago. He, he did escape from this country. Uh, he apparently reformed himself sufficiently so that in his final years, he was mostly just remembered as a doting father to his 24 children and grandfather to God knows how many. I saw 54 at one point, but I think by the end of things, it was probably much more... He died in 1875. I think I did not write that down. His $13 million estate was divvied up in various ways. 
His first wife, Maria, got nothing, of course, although other heirs came together to give her $150,000. And, of course, Marianne headed back to court asking for a million bucks from the estate for her ample pain and suffering. Sure. She was ultimately awarded $75,000 by the court. The New York Times headline of a story on that was Isaac M. Singer's Millions, one of five alleged wives contests his will, known as man and wife for 25 years. He, of course, got a lengthy, if highly sanitized, obit in the Times, which <laughs> I bet. ends thusly, as does our story today. Three of his sons are in business in this city, and there are other children elsewhere, which is like the understatement of That's the it. That, that's your big journalistic integrity. Three of his sons are in the city. <laughs> other kids are, are other places. Other children elsewhere. Wow, that's amazing. I don't know how many trash cans to give him. They're all cast iron, and they will ultimately be replaced by cheaply manufactured aluminum trash cans from Japan. But that won't happen until after World War II. Good Lord. So with his lawyer business partner, when he finally left for Europe to stay gone, they hated each other so much that they had to bring in a third person to serve as president of the company because neither one would sign off on the other serving as president. Could you imagine that job? Mr. Mediator? Well, and so the the agreement that they signed on to was like, this third party will be president of the company until one of us dies. And then the surviving one of us will be president of the company. And the lawyer business partner was the surviving one and obviously made Singer into a hugely successful company. But wow. Wow. From humble origins, from humble, trashy origins... Maria number five. Man, happy Labor Day, everybody, because wow. this, this guy is who brought us sweatshops at the end of the day. So. Stacy, that was incredible. You are, <laughs> what did you say in the beginning? There's never been quite a story like this. No, I concur. No, well no. done. A plus in the trash candy department. My heart is overjoyed with the bountiful amount of trash candy that is. To Stacy's point, happy Labor Day if you celebrate Happy coming into fall season. Mm-hmm. September has arrived. It's fall here. We're hoping. Coming into spring south of the yes. equator. So hello to all of our Aussies and Kiwis. Yes. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in this week. We're going to be back on Wednesday with, I think, a pretty fun thing that I'm planning. I mean, we will be back on Wednesday. I think the thing I'm planning is pretty fun. That's how. That managed to work. If you need more Trashy Divorces in the meantime, check us out at patreon.com slash Trashy Divorces, or you can hear some of the stuff we put over there at bit.ly slash Trash Candy. Your story today reminded me about the traveling troops of actors that would go around Tudor England. Mm -hmm. I may throw that episode up on the bit.ly free link. Yep, it is a uh, (laughs) long-standing thing that acting troops do. Well, that's our Shakespeare wagon out of here. Y'all, everybody, again, thanks for tuning in. We adore your trashy heart so much until we see you on Wednesday. Keep those hands clean. And stay lazy enough to invent better things to do your job for you. (laughs) And keep your hearts trashy. That too. Bye, friends. (laughs) Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacey and Alicia 
with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening. Keep it trashy, y'all.